How many of you agree that motherhood is a full contact sport? Would you agree to that? You know, mothers are often asked to do some very unusual things. For example, I found this, and uh, it, it tells a story about one day while a mom was at home with, alone with her children, she got an expected phone call from her neighbor, and the neighbor said, Sue, there's a gorilla swinging on your satellite dish on your roof. And she quickly ran outside, and sure enough, there was a gorilla swinging on the antenna. And so she ran inside, and she called the zoo. The man at the zoo said that, that he didn't handle situations like that, but he gave Sue a number of a guy who did. Sue called the guy, and the guy came over and, to Sue's house, and he brought five items, five things with him as he approached her on the front lawn. A ladder, a rifle, a baseball bat, a rope, and a dog. He explained to, the guy, uh, to her uh, that what he was going to do. He said, first I'm going to go and climb up this ladder. I'm going to beat the gorilla over the head with a bat. And when the gorilla falls off of the roof, the dog will bite him on the leg. And that's when you throw this bag over the gorilla and tie him up as quickly as you can. And he will then, we will then take the gorilla to the zoo. Sound like a plan, right? Sue was imagining the sequence of events and the order of things in which she was told. She became somewhat curious about the rifle. She had never actually fired a rifle before and was a little uncomfortable with the thought of holding it while he, the man was on the roof. She thought for another second or two, and then she had the bravery and the audacity to ask, if I understand it correctly, you're going to go climb up the ladder, beat the grill over the head with the bat. When the gorilla falls off the antenna, off the roof, the dog will then bite the gorilla on the leg. I am supposed to throw this bag over his head and tie him up as quickly as I can. We will then take the gorilla to the zoo. That part of the plan I understand, but what do I need the gun for? The guy responded, are you ready? Are you ready? Okay, are you sure? Okay. For some slim chance, he said, that when I climb up the ladder and the gorilla grabs the bat and beats me over the head, I want you to shoot the dog before I hit the ground. <laughs> the sequence of events, the bite, never mind. Have you ever planned for failure? Most of us don't. I don't know too many mothers that plan to fail. I don't know too many people who do. And while mothers are engaged in a full contact sport, Jesus is inviting his disciples to engage in a full contact sport. And that contact sport is to become involved in making disciples. Mothers are not only disciples themselves, but mothers are also disciple makers. Mothers are to be involved in following Jesus personally and to live an exemplary life before her children, but she is also, I think, called by God as a disciple to be a discipler of her children or of other people. And there are many ways and many things that mothers need to do, should do, ought to do, and could do in order to make that possible. For the greatest mission field for the mother, I believe, is in the home with her children. For more is caught than more is taught. While teaching is a big part of that responsibility for a, every parent. And so we learn that in this contact sport of motherhood, that Jesus is telling his disciples that discipleship is also a full contact sport for up until this time, from the time we begin in the early part of Matthew in two series ago, where he preached the Sermon on the Mount, and he then engaged in ministry 
The disciples have been somewhat on the sidelines, or maybe they've been benched, and they've been watching Jesus participate in ministry. They've been watching Jesus actually do ministry. And now is the time. This is the first time in Matthew chapter 10 where the disciples are invited now to engage in full contact with those whom they are to be ministering to. He doesn't want them to be spectators anymore. He doesn't want them to just watch and sit on the sidelines. He wants them to become involved in the mission of making disciples and to minister in the name of Christ. And so he's about to send them off. But before he does, he wants to give them a couple of words of instruction. There's some things that he wants his disciples to understand and to know before he sends them off into the harvest field or the mission field. It's kind of like, you know, when you send your child off to school for the first time. Have you ever done that? And before you leave them on that campus, there's a few words that you want to say to them before you leave, and you hope that they're going to listen to what you have to say. And more than likely, you know they're not going to remember what you said. But you want to give them a few nuggets of information of wisdom before you leave them to help them in their journey. And so here the disciples are being encouraged by Jesus through these instructions as he's about to send them off. Before you go, here's some things I want you to know. He's commissioning them to go out into the mission field, out into the harvest that he's already prepared. And he commissions us as well, beginning in Matthew chapter 28, commissions us as disciples to go into all the world and to make disciples. That's the commission that he gave to all the people, to all of the church. So in essence, the commission that he gives to these disciples is our commission as well, a commission to join, to join Jesus in the harvest. We have been describing this harvest, for he is the Lord of the harvest, and he has already prepared a harvest that is ripe, that is ready for the picking, and he's calling us to join him as his labor force out into this field. We saw early on in this first study of this new series that we've been, we've been introduced really two Sundays ago, where we were to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. The disciples, these 12, are a part of the answer to that prayer. And he is commissioning them to go. They have answered the call, and now they're about to go. And in this last introductory introduction, instruction that he's giving the disciples, there's some things that we ought to know as we join Christ in his harvest field, in his mission field. First of all, as we took a look at the outline, he wants us to understand that as we join him in the harvest, we must, I must, you must, we must project availability. There's a certain projection here, and that projection is one to be available to him, to go wherever he sends, to whomever he sends, to say whatever he wants us to say. There's an availability whenever, wherever, to whomever he sends. It's, a, it's an openness where we are simply available to go wherever Whenever, to whomever he sends, without any boundaries, without any constrictions, without any constraints, we are to be available to him on call at any time, anywhere, to anyone that he wants to send us. And here we see in this disciples, in verse 5, where he says, these 12, Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Notice the 12 are mentioned again. I like Matthew here. He's just going straight to the, to the 12. He doesn't take the time to, to list them again. He's already done that in the previous verse. He simply mentions them now as the 12. They have been called by Christ. They have answered the call. He then 
has told us that he has already transferred his power over to the disciples. We studied that last week. He gave them his authority. The timing now to go out into the harvest field, into the mission field is now, not later, but now. But before you go, I want to give you some instructions about the target that I want you to hit. There's a target. I don't know about you, but when you go to the gun range with the pastors of Emmanuel Baptist Church, you learn that some can hit the target and some can't, Mark Mattingly. Uh, You know, Mark's such a great marksman that when we went to the gun range, he actually hit the wire that was holding the the target rather than the target itself. And uh, he had a zombie that he was having a hard time hitting. But anyway, that's kind of what we do to, to, you know, to deal with the steam of ministry as we go shooting together at the gun range. But anyway... Uh, we were introducing Mark to one of the gun rages here in Wichita, and we found out he's not that quite of a marksman, so that's okay, so you're safe. Where are you, Mark? I know you're out there somewhere, but uh, I'll pay for it later. But anyway, Jesus is giving his disciples a target, and he wants them to hit the bullseye. But in describing the target, first of all, you notice in the text that there is a concentration that the disciples are to give to the target, and there's a concentrated effort in that they are to avoid a certain group of people. They are to avoid the Gentiles, and they are to avoid the Samaritans. And there was someone who would say that Jesus is being somewhat prejudicial here because he is a Jew, and we know that the Jews don't really associate with Gentiles, and they de- definitely don't associate with Samaritans. They're, they're scum of the earth. They're, they're lower than low. I mean, they're, they're, you just don't hang out with Samaritans much less Gentiles, unbelievers, those who are not a part of the elect. That's not what really Jesus is saying here. He's not being prejudicial in the target that he's defining or describing. What he's saying here is this. There is a mission field that is a harvest that is ripe for the picking. It's this harvest field, not that one. Are there different seasons in harvest fields, Brother Denny? Some come in the spring, some come in the summer, and some come into the fall. And it's interesting how God has different types of seasons for different types of harvest and different types of crop. And Jesus is saying, I've been working in this field right here, in the field of Israel, in the field of the Jew for quite some time from the very foundation of time. I have been working here. I have promised them a Messiah. I am now through through me, Jesus saying, through me, the promise is now before them. I am the promised Messiah, and God has been working in this field, and it is ripened to the harvest, and he's saying, guys, this is the harvest that God has ripened for you and is ready for the picking, and this is the one I want you to go into. He's not just discounting the other fields. He's going to later say in Matthew chapter 28, when he ascends to heaven and addresses the disciples, he's going to say, go into all the world and make disciples. And he's going to send them in Judea, Samaria, and to the other ends of the earth. So he's not prejudicial here. He's simply saying that the harvest that I have prepared for you is right here in Galilee among the Jews, among Israel. That's where I want you to go right now to concentrate on and to harvest for me. And he sends them out in this area called Galilee. And he's wanting them to be available to the harvest that he's sending, to the field that he's sending them to, not to just freelance and go wherever they want to, but to be available to go where he sends, 
whenever he sins, to whomever he sins, wherever he sins. And I wonder if we, like the disciples, are available to go whenever, to go wherever, and to whomever he sends. Are you available? Well, if you and I are going to enter the harvest field, we must not only project availability, but secondly, we must proclaim intentionally. There's an intentionality about what we proclaim. There's a clarity about what we are to say. He says in verse 7, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I like that word, and. It connects what he says in verse 5 and 6. And not only do I want you to concentrate your effort on the harvest that I have prepared for you, and away from the one that's not quite ready for the picking, I want you to, as you go, to proclaim as you go. There is a continuous proclamation in this text. This word proclaim means to continually proclaim as you go. The, the word proclamation, the word proclaim here is a word in which we are representatives of a king and we are now to go out into the streets and the highways and the byways and to proclaim the good news that the king has given us. We are to shout it from the rooftops at the top of our lungs, declaring and proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Christ. And we are to not only proclaim it as he sends us out, but to constantly, continuously proclaim it and never stop. We have a gospel, a proclamation from the king in which we should never stop proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ at any time, anywhere, for any reason. It is always that very one subject, that one topic, that one gospel that we are to continuously, constantly declare and proclaim. I had a, had a pastor who texted me here recently and he was, he was saying, you know, I've got, I've got a member of my church who just came with a complaint and I said, really, what complaint? He said, they're, they're, they're complaining that I see the gospel everywhere in the Bible. Everywhere. And I went, man, if that's the only complaint you're getting from church members, that's pretty cool. But the gospel is everywhere. Some of you have been studying what we call the gospel project, and you're learning that the gospel is, is tucked even in the passages of the Old Testament, not just in the New Testament. The gospel is everywhere, and it should be the one thing that we are constantly declaring and proclaiming, the good news of Christ. I remember a pastor one time, after 30-plus years of ministry, they finally ran him off from his church, and the main reason why they ran him off is said, Preacher, we're tired of hearing you constantly preach the gospel. That's the only message you know. I thought, my soul. But it is the only message that we've been given. And it should be continuously proclaimed. But notice, it is to be constantly on the move. He says, and proclaim as you go. As you go in your day-to-day -day life, wherever you go, as you go, constantly, continuously, on the go, on the move, everywhere you go, proclaim the good news, the gospel of Christ to anyone, anywhere, at any time. It's for everyone, anywhere, at any time, as you go. Notice he says, saying, what are we to say? The kingdom of heaven. It's a clear message. It's the same message that John had. We have recorded for us in Matthew that John the Baptist declared the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We know, according to Matthew 4 and other passages, that Jesus also declared that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's giving to his disciples the same message that John the Baptist had, the same one that they have heard him preach, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel of Christ is here. Jesus, the promised Messiah, has arrived. But notice here in the urgency, there is a convictional urgency in this text that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here, it is now, and the opportunity is for now. 
because it's not going to be here later. There's a conviction and urgency that the gospel of the kingdom, the clarity of the message of the gospel, but it's at hand. Jesus is present, and Jesus is offering it now. The opportunity to receive Christ is now. And somehow, somewhere, we as a church today, unlike Jesus and his disciples, have lost the urgency of that conviction. We've lost the, the convictional urgency of our message. We've heard that Jesus is coming, and we believe that he's coming, and we know the end of time is coming, but we're not really urgent about our message. And I'm here to tell you that there's an urgency in the message that we've been given and the intentionality that we are to go as we go and declare the message. We are to do it with urgency because there are people who may not ever have an opportunity after they've heard it once to ever have it again. One of the saddest things that happens as a pastor is we've been called from time to time of people who have attended our church. And there's a young man that was here Easter. It was the last time he was in church. He's now on his deathbed. He's a young man. About to face death, possibly. His, his future is only in the hands of God, and they don't really quite know where he's going to spend, you know, spend his last moments here on earth. And, and I thought about that when Mike called me this weekend when I was in, in Frisco, Texas, visiting my, my son and daughter-in-law and grandchildren. The guy was here at Easter, and that's the last time we've seen him, and now he's on life support in a hospital. And the urgency of the message that we've been given and the brevity of life, the uncertainty of life, not knowing how long we're going to have an opportunity to receive the gospel and how long we're going to have an opportunity to preach and proclaim the gospel to those who can hear it and receive it. The only assurance that we have is that one of these days we're going to breathe our last breath and die. We're not really sure how long and when that's going to be. And even the ones that we know. So where's the urgency in our message? For one of these days, the trumpet of God is going to blow and the dead in Christ are going to rise. And those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds and we're going to be forever with the Lord. And time as we know it will cease to exist and it will all come crashing down. And the time and the opportunity will have been lost. And we have an urgency about our message. And we must do it with intentionality because one of these days... Time as we know it will stop. It will cease to exist and eternity will begin and that's it. It'll be over. Where's our urgency in the intentionality of proclaiming the message of Christ? So we must not only enter into the harvest with a projected availability and proclaiming an intentionality, but present authenticity. Authenticity is huge. What is the greatest derogatory statement you ever heard about the church? And nothing but hypocrites there. You ever heard that? Hypocrisy. And I say amen to that because I don't know anyone in here who's living up to what they would like to live to be. They, most of us know way more than, than what we're living. We know the standards and the precepts of Christ, and most of us in here would freely admit that we're not perfect and we're not living up to complete perfection. And there are things in our lives that we're, we're working on, but, but yet that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about all, an authenticity in which the world sees in us a Jesus that not only represents and reflects perfection, but one that represents and reflects grace. Notice the text. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. What is the authenticity here? Jesus is saying, I want to send you out representing me. I I know that you as my disciples, you have no credentials in and of your own self. You, you, you don't have degrees. You've not sent under some famous scribe or elder or teacher of the law. 
And the people that you're going to be communicating to, they're going to say, what are your credentials? How do we know that you're authentic? How do we know that you represent Jesus whom you claim to represent? And how are they going to know that they represent Jesus? Because they're going to see these disciples doing the very same things that Jesus did. And as they do these things that Jesus did, they're going to know, you've been with Jesus. And that ministry is going to authenticate their ministry, and they're going to look at them and know that in the ministry that they're doing, as they're reflecting and representing Christ, doing the very same things, that's going to authenticate their ministry. But notice also, it's an authentication of motive. There there needs to be an authentic motive in why we seek to reach people, because he says that you you have received without paying, now give without pay. These disciples received something that was simply by grace through faith. It wasn't something they had to earn or work for or pay. They could buy. It was by grace through faith. Jesus freely gave them what they have by grace, unmerited faith. And so he's saying as you go out, go out with the right motive. Don't don't go out with the intention of getting back in return, but go out and just simply give freely, give as you have received. And I'm convinced today that there are some, not all, but some who are seeking to go out into the harvest field of Christ, not to give, but simply to gain. They're there for what they can get rather than what they can give. And many Pastors and preachers and prophets today have huge egos and are wanting to build large ministries for their own edification, not for the edification of Christ, or for the large buildings that they hope to fill. There's all kinds of motives and reasons. And I would hope that we as a church, that our primary motive would be to give, not to get. To do without expecting anything in return. And let God being the Lord of the harvest him being the Lord of the harvest, not us, would then bless our efforts and give in response to our giving. Motive is huge. And people understand that when you invite them to Christ or invite them to church or they come to a situation like this, that, that they're there for what you can get from them or out of them rather than what you can give to them. And so we need to be really careful that we present authentic motives and authentic ministry as we engage a lost community. Number four, we need to proceed expectantly. As we go into the harvest, as we proceed with the gospel, we need to do it with an expectancy that God will provide. It's interesting, he says to his disciples as he sends them out, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff. He's saying travel light. I've learned to travel light. Have you? When I'm on an airplane, the few times a year I'm on an airplane, I like to take my little bag on the airplane and travel light because I don't like to sit there with the others and wait for your bag going by, you know, like that. And you can take your bag on the plane if you can and put it in a little stowaway. It's got to be a certain size. Yeah, I learned to travel light. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus is saying, I want you to travel light as you're going out, as you're going forth. As you're going out into the harvest that I am preparing for you, I want you to travel lightly. In other words, I want you to focus on the message, on the mission, and don't focus on the material possessions that you can acquire and attain in this life. And I think, and I find that there there are often so much that we are tempted by, simply by the commercials that we watch on television that are tempting us to focus all of our effort, our energy, and our focus on the material, on the physical, and not on the spiritual and the eternal. 
And he's saying, you need to focus on the eternal. You need to focus on the spiritual. Don't spend all of your lives focus on the material. I know some of you are thinking, well, the material sure helps, but it pays some of the bills. I get it. But I wonder how many bills we have to pay. How many cars do we have to own? How many boats do we have to ride in? How many clothes do we have to purchase? How big does our house have to be? And if we're not careful, we get caught up in this materialistic world, and it robs us of the potential focus of, the, of the being the steward that Christ would have us to be. And he says not only travel light, but he says trust God. For the laborer deserves his, did you notice that? His food. His food. It's interesting that uh, little Cannon Knox Boswell is almost three. Little bitty dude. And uh, he loves his doc. I mean, that's my grandpa named Doc. Uh, my oldest son gave it to me when I got my doctorate, and so they call me Doc. It's a great name, by the way, because it's, that's the first syllable children learn. It, duh, duh, duh. And so I was the first one that they could say, you know, the grandparent name, Doc. That was easy, so it was, it's cool. And said so it sticks in their brain. And so, you know. Grana, which is my wife's, is a little bit harder to say. So it takes them, you know, they're about 15 till they can say that. But DACA is a little bit easier for them to say. And so, you know, we were in, the, in, in Kmart while we were there. And he said, Doc, I need this. Doc, I need this. I mean, the, the kid's not even three yet. Grabbing stuff. I need this, Doc. I need this. Buy this. I need this. I mean, dude. And, and the reason why a three-year-old can say that is he's got older siblings in his family. They learn quickly, don't they? I need and the whole time his dad said, you don't need that. No, you don't need that. And Doc was there to buy him something. We were looking for one of his Power Rangers that he believed he needed, but we couldn't find the one he wanted. But he needed some other things while we were there. And I got to thinking about this study. How much do we really need? How much do we really need? And, and, and doesn't God pro- promise to provide for our needs? And we need to understand that as we go forth into the harvest, into the mission field that he has prepared, God will provide for our needs. Nothing more and nothing less for our needs. And you can trust him, and he will do that. Proceed expectantly. Number five and number last, we need to perceive divinely or use spiritual discernment or perceive supernaturally if you want. There's a divine, supernatural, discerning ability that we need to have in Christ as we're going out in the harvest that God has prepared for us to reap. How do we we discern what is out there? Notice he says in verse 11, and whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment than for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Notice the word, find out who is worthy. How are they going to find out who is worthy when they enter into a new town in Galilee? He's sending them out two by two. And as he sends them out, they're going into a new place. They don't know anybody, but now they're expected to find out. Jesus doesn't tell them how to find it out, but I'm convinced because they have the authority of Jesus and the power of Christ, they're able to then discern spiritually where those are. The worthy part here means they are receptive to the messenger, to the message, and the Messiah. Now, 
understand this, and we need to understand it clearly, because you cannot receive the messenger or the Messiah unless you receive the message. But you can't receive the Messiah unless you receive the message and the messenger. They're all linked. If you reject the messenger, you're going to reject the message and the Messiah. And so as the messenger comes in and they receive the messenger, they're going to be receptive to the message and they're going to receive the Messiah. They're all equally linked. And these messengers are supposed to go in and discern spiritually who are the receptive ones. That what, that's what the word worthy means. They're receptive to them as messengers, to their message, and to the Messiah. Now look in this text as a whole. There are two reactions to the activity of God. Because God, as he sends them into the harvest, he's working in that city. And there are two reactions. First of all, there are two reactions. One is reception and one is rejection. There are those who are receptive and there are those who are not. The receptive ones are those that receive the messenger, they hear the message, and they receive the Messiah. Those are the receptive ones. They receive the messenger, they hear the message, and they receive the Messiah. But there's also the rejection part. They have rejected the messenger, they have rejected the message, so therefore they have rejected the Messiah. There are two responses, reception and rejection. That is true still today. There are those that you know that are going to receive, and there are those that you know that are going to reject. They just simply are. Those are the two alternative choices, reception and rejection. And not everybody is going to receive the messenger or the message or the Messiah. And there are some who are going to flat out reject the messenger and the message and the Messiah. And notice now the responses in this text. One response is reward. There's a response from the messenger that is of reward. Notice it talked about going into the house and then giving your blessing on that house. That blessing that, that as they enter that house that has received the gospel message and they have received the Messiah, they are then to bless that person and bless their home. They are asking God for his favor on the home, on the people who live there. It is a spiritual, it is a bodily, and it is a mental blessing. It is the favor of God upon these people. So as they receive the message, there is peace, there is favor with God, but also there's forgiveness from sin. But the word peace also seems to convey the idea that now through repentance, you've been reconciled rightly with the Father through faith in Jesus, and now you have peace rather than hostility between you and God. So the reward is favor and forgiveness. But notice the rebuke, because there's always a rebuke to those who reject. For it says in verse 14, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. What's the rebuke? Shake the dust off. Where did that come from? That came from the Jews, and as they would go into Gentile territory, and they were coming to the promised land as they crossed that border. It's always great to finally get out of Oklahoma and get into Texas. Sorry about you Oklahomans, you know. I've learned to appreciate that, but the storms in Oklahoma going through there yesterday were horrific. Dad gum. Uh, Patty lost about 10 years of her life driving with me through those things. But anyway, I was so glad to finally get to Kansas. And there's no place, see if I can, there's no place like home, you know? Uh, me and Dorothy were like, like this. There's, there's no place like home. So 
People ask me all the time, is, 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 is Kansas Tornado Alley? I said, no, 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 Oklahoma's Tornado Alley. Don't, don't believe the Wizard of Oz, okay? That should have been done in Oklahoma City. It shouldn't have been done in Wichita. But anyway, notice the rebuke, first of all, from the messengers. As they cross from the Gentile territory into the promised land, they shook the dust off of their feet, releasing whatever it was in that subculture that wasn't of God into the promised land. And these messengers, when they were going into these cities and they were rejected as messengers and they resisted the message and refused to receive Christ, they, they were instructed to just shake the dust off of there. Just, just put it behind you. And I imagine in that rejection there were words that were said and things that were done that were horrific and they were just to put it all behind. No bitterness, no anger, just release it all. Just shake off all that uncleanliness and all that and move into the next city. Shake it off and leave. That's really the only thing you can do when someone is just flat out not receptive to the gospel is you just leave. You know, if, 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 if a ground isn't fertile and it's not receptive to the seed of the gospel and it can't be watered, it'll never produce a harvest. And yet I wonder how many of us as messengers are wasting a lot of effort and a lot of energy trying to reap a harvest where there's no fertile ground. And maybe that could be the reason why we're not enjoying the harvest that we are meant to enjoy because the harvest, Jesus said, is ripe for the picking. And so we need to choose our harvest field rightly. We need to choose the people that are receptive and how God has been working in their lives. And, and it's okay to walk away from some from time to time and not feel guilty about it because obviously God's not at work in that person's life right now. doesn't mean that he's not going to be in the future, but right now, that person's not a part of the harvest. And it's okay to move on to better fields, more receptive people. But notice the Messiah's rejection. It'd be better for them on Judgment Day for Sodom and Gomorrah than it would be for you. There is a Judgment Day someday that's coming for those who reject the messenger, his message, and the Messiah. It's coming. I believe it's coming sooner than later. For I believe we're in the last days. I really do. I know there have been cultures and generations before us that believed they were in the last days. I really believe we're getting close to the end of, of the last days. And because of that, there's an urgency with our message. Because there are those who will be judged because of their, their rejection of the gospel. And yet we must go forward. So as we enter into the harvest field, the question as we close is simply this. In our commission of the gospel to join Jesus in the harvest, what then will be our response? What will be your response to this commission that he's given each and every one of us? Matthew 28, he says, go, go, as you go, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We have been commissioned, commissioned to go into a harvest. 
will you go? Would you be the answer to Jesus' prayer? For he, I believe, is praying, Lord, send laborers into my harvest. For some of us, it may be the first time we go. Don't expect to be received right away and expect maybe to be rejected. You want to know how difficult that rejection is going to be? Come back next Sunday and we're going to talk about the persecution that's coming, I believe, to the church and to those who are laboring out in the harvest for the kingdom. Or I believe rejection is going to increase. I believe persecution is going to be on the, on the uprise. And yet we are still commanded to go anywhere, anyone, with the message of Christ and be willing to become his laborers in his mission, in his harvest field. Will you go? Let's pray. All right, this morning we have the baptism of Joseph, Isaac, and Benjamin today. And we have some family that's here. And if you're their family, would you stand at this time? If you're here and you're here to celebrate their baptism today, stand, all right? Let's, let's express our welcome to this family and their joy. If you had them in Life Group or Awana or anything like that, would you stand? You're responsible for this too as well. Any of you out there, would you stand at this time? All right, thank you. And all of you who support these three little guys as they follow the Lord, would you just stand with them and this family as well? Let's all stand together. All right, Joseph, have you trusted Jesus as your Savior yes. and committed to follow him as your Lord? Yes? It's my privilege to baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in his death, to walk with Christ in his resurrection. Isaac, come on up here, buddy. All right. Isaac, if you trusted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior and committed to follow him as your Lord, it's my privilege to baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in his death, to walk in the power of his resurrection. Careful. All right. Benjamin, are you ready? Hold my hand, buddy. All right, a little bit of water anxiety here. I don't blame them. Benjamin, have you trusted Jesus as your Savior and committed to follow him as your Lord? 
It's my privilege to baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in his death, to walk with Christ in the power of his resurrection. Father, we love and we thank you for the joy that is ours to celebrate the baptism of these three beautiful young boys. And it's our hope and our prayer that as you, who reside in their hearts, have a purpose and intent for their baptism today, and that you're going to use them mightily for your glory. Build a hedge of protection around them and keep them close to you at all times. I pray that we as a church would sense our responsibility that we have and those parents that are here to be able to assist the maturing process that you want to do. So, Lord, use us all for your glory in the discipleship of these three and use them ultimately for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.